for that. Now we're turning tonight to the book of Nahum, to the chapter 2, and we're going to read from the first verse of the chapter. The book of Nahum, chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 1 of the chapter. Nahum, chapter 2, and beginning at verse 1. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation. And the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets. They shall jostle one another in the broadways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They shall make haste to the wall thereof, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the rivers shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. And Huzab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, with her ma- and her maids shall lead her, as with the voice of doves, doves, tabering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is of old like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and the glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the lions whelp and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his wealth and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Again, let's unite in a word of prayer. Our gracious and our loving God, we do thank thee, Even as we've come to these words, we thank, Lord, of the destruction of Nineveh that was accomplished there in 612 B.C. And we thank, Lord, of thy word uh, speaking about these things before it ever took place. We thank, Lord, of the way that God's word has been accomplished. And we thank thee for the truth that there is in the precious word of God. And we'd ask thee, Lord, that even as we see what God has done, and as we see the Word of God that has been accomplished as we look back now, we pray that men and women 
might realize that what else is revealed in this chapter may be revealed or may be revealed and out poured upon them. So our Father, we'd ask thee that thou wouldst come and bless us tonight as we gather round thy word, for it is in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. We've started to look at the book of Nahum, and we've noted that the prophecy of Nahum comes about a hundred years after the prophecy of Jonah. You'll know that during the uh, ministry of Jonah, that Nineveh had turned away from its wickedness and its sin. Under the preaching of God's prophet, there had been a great repentance that had taken place. Nineveh had turned unto the Lord. But in the hundred years that had intervened, there is a repenting of their repentance. And it seems as if, and it obviously is the fact that Nineveh has turned back to its sin and to its violence. The prophet Nahum was to minister the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the invasion of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. He had come to attack Jerusalem at the time, and he had attacked Judah, and God was moving here in the midst. Judah was going to suffer under that, but in the midst of the attack, God is sending this message of comfort. The name Nahum means comfort. It means consolation. And the consolation was that even though this mighty army was coming against them, that God was stronger, that God would destroy the enemy. And of course, that's a message of consolation and comfort that the enemy is going to be destroyed. And as we've intimated in prayer there, this is one of the portions of Scripture that is already fulfilled. It was fulfilled at the time when Babylon and the Persians and the Scythians and some other nations got together in rebellion against Assyria and came against the mighty city and overthrew it. And we can see that God fulfills his word. If we are looking at apologetics, this is something that we can look into because here is the picture of God uh, and he has fulfilled his word. And we think of God sometimes today and people do as some kind of uh, old gentleman in the sky with a twinkle in his eye. And God is a God of love. But we also remember that God is a God of justice and a God who will by no means clear the guilty. And that is the picture that we have in this portion of Scripture. And if we were to sum up the uh, second chapter, we would say that in the first chapter that the wrath of God is revealed. God says, this is what I'm going to do. He announces his wrath. But in the second chapter, it's more practical. This is how God is going to accomplish what he has said he will do. This is the practicalities of how this is going to unfold. So God does not just give this uh, proclamation that he's going to send his wrath, but God reveals that this is going to be accomplished in such and such a manner. You can see the detail in which God 
reveals these things. Of course, again, all of these things are accomplished. But I want you to look at the chilling words in verse 13 of the chapter. I think really this is a summary. We're saying that this is a revelation of how God was going to reveal his wrath. But I want you to look at the words in verse 13. Here is the word of God to Nineveh. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. What an awful thing to have God say to you, I am against you. You know, one of the blessings that God's people have is to know that the Lord is with them every step of the way. He said to his disciples when he sent them out uh, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the, the age. And we think of how God is with his people. We think of how the phrase was repeatedly used about Joseph and others. The Lord was with Joseph. And my, what a blessing was on his life. Now, it didn't mean that Joseph was uh, saved from all of the adversities and the trials of life for uh, Joseph and many of them. But in the midst of all of the trials of life, he could say that the Lord was with him. The Lord was alongside him. He had somebody to be able to turn to in the midst of all of his need. But here God says of people, I am against you. Here is a completely different kettle of fish tonight where God says, I'm against you. And if you're not saved, God's against you. If you're uh, rejecting God and his word, God is against you. You may profess tonight to be an atheist and you mightn't believe in the God that we're saying is against you. But whether you believe in him or not, he's against you. Because in your sin and in your rebellion, God is against you. And I want us to think about that phrase tonight. I want us to think about what it means that God is against you. And dear friend, if I can stir you up tonight, if I can in some way get you uh, fearful of the fact that God is against you, then I will have done my job. You know, if somebody is running down the road towards danger and we don't warn them about the danger, then in some way we're guilty of the danger that they're getting themselves into. And I have to, as God's servant, proclaim this message tonight, that God is against the sinner. And so we want to think about what that means uh, for a few minutes tonight. And the first thing that I want you to see about the God that is against you is the power of this God. Look at verse 1. He says, verse two, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, He that dasheth in pieces is come, come up before thy face. This is the description of God. Now, it is a description of the uh, forces that were going to come as we've said, the Babylonians, the Medes, uh, the Scythians, the, Bab- the Cimmer- Cimmerians, 
and all others were coming up, and it is a description of them. They are those that dash in pieces. But ultimately behind all of that is the God of heaven, because it's the purpose of God. God is declaring it here because of their violence, because of their wickedness, because of their sin, they were going to be dashed in pieces. And this is the God that dashes in pieces. And the word dash in pieces there really means pulverized into fine dust. And where it says that he's come up before thy face, it means there that is a frontal attack really. He's come up uh, right in your face. And so this is a full frontal attack and it's going to pulverize them and leave them in dust. And the city was left in dust as we've mentioned many times. But you'll notice that that uh, phrase there is in the past tense. He that dasheth in pieces is or was come up before thy face. It is in the past tense. And this is what is called the prophetic past tense. And you find that in many of the prophets where they set out a prophecy, something is going to take place, and they set it out in the past tense uh, to indicate that it is so sure that it is as if it's already happened. It is so uh, set in stone that it would be in the eyes of God as if it had already happened. Actually, probably it was in the eyes of God as if it already happened. But I want you to think about this God here. The, The Bible speaks of God as the one to whom vengeance belongeth. And it speaks here of him breaking in pieces. And it goes on here and it speaks about the way that Nineveh had uh, broken in pieces, broken pieces God's people, how they had broken the spirit of widows and exploited widows. And we'll see that in chapter 3 when we come to it. But we will see here now there is judgment in kind again. Once again, we see the law of judgment and kind, those that had dashed others in peace. And you know we have spoken about the way that the uh, Assyrians conducted themselves, how that they loved to put their uh, prisoners on stakes, alive on stakes, how they were the inventors of crucifixion. It wasn't their main method of torture, but they would flay people. They would take the skin of people, And they would do all of these things. Now, what does God say to a people like that? I'm going to dash you in pieces. Their thought was that they should put people to death in the most painful manner that they could. If people were going to be their enemies, they were going to pay for the fact that they were their enemies. Now God says, I'm going to dash you in pieces. And we think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 94 He says in verses 16 to 18, Who will rise up before me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence when I said my foot slippeth. Thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. And the psalmist is really saying there that there has got to be justice. He said if there was no justice, If there was nobody to stand against the workers of iniquity, then my feet would slip. I I wouldn't be able to understand that. But here is God who is against the evildoers, against those 
that turn their back on God. We thought about the great picture there in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 to 16. And it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes are, were as a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. You notice were again as the prophetic past. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was, he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth go a sharp sword. That with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And the one that is against you today is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want to tell you tonight, it doesn't matter what preparation you make against this God. If God is against you, there's no escape. You notice it speaks about the preparation that the uh, children of Assyria made. It says there, keep the munition, watch the way. This is God being sarcastic to them. Oh, make your preparation. And then you go down... um, It says in verse 5, the defense shall be prepared. And God has said to them, no matter what you do, no matter how much munition, no matter how much weapons, how many weapons you have, no matter how strong, how much you fortify yourself, you can never be prepared to face Almighty God. You know, there are many people who think that I'm prepared I'm prepared. I'll face God. I heard, well, Stephen Fry, the uh, atheist, the comedian, and he said, if I stand before God, I will ask him about what he did with this and that and spoke about some of the awful things that have happened in the world. And he, he thinks that he's prepared to face God. Maybe you think you're prepared. You think, well, in some way I'll get round God. Some way God will let me pass through. Maybe you are an atheist today and you've bolstered yourself with the false notion that uh, the modern day knowledge that we have has dismissed God and you think you're prepared to stand before God. There is no preparation that you can make that will enable you to stand against God. God, encourage the Ninevites. Secure your gates. Do all you can. Do all you can. Not going to make one button of difference in the eyes of God. Not only is God more powerful than any preparation, but God is more powerful than our presumptions. You know, as we, I think I've said this before, but the Ninevites thought that nobody could overcome them. They thought that this great city that they had with the walls, that in places were three chariots deep, 
and mighty fortifications round the walls that they were completely secure, that there was no army in the world was going to breach those uh, defenses that they had. And they were trusting in their own military engineering and in the military defenses that had been prepared. Dear friend, I want to tell you tonight, you cannot stand against God. No matter what munitions, you may sneer at the message. You, you, you may have presumed on your own power, your ingenuity. You think that we live in a day when everybody can do their own thing and everybody's opinion is as good as every other opinion and every religion has a little bit in it uh, but uh, it's not all of the truth, dear friend. I want to disabuse you. No matter what your defense is, no matter what preparation you've made and no matter what presumption you may have, it is nothing when you stand against the Lord of hosts. You notice what he says in verse 13. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, the hosts of heaven, the mighty one, El Shaddai. Dear friend, you cannot stand against him. But not only do I want you to see the power of the God who's against you. But I want you to think about the perpetuity of the God who is against you. Notice again what is said there. I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, those are the most frightening words, or some of the most frightening words in all of the scriptures there. But I want you to see the way that God reveals himself here. You notice the word am there is in italics. But the word am has to be implied. But I am is the name Jehovah. I am is the covenant name of God. And if uh, we uh, are not willing to accept that, you can go on there and you can see, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And you'll notice that the word Lord there is in capitals, Jehovah of hosts. And this is the covenant God. This is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now you think of the many places in the Bible or the number of places where God says to people, I'm against you. In Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 31, God speaks to Babylon. He says, Behold, I'm against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord God of hosts, for thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. And in Jeremiah 51 and verse 25, God repeats his opposition to Babylon. He said, Behold, I am against thee, O destroying mountain, saith the Lord, which destroyest all the earth, and I will stretch out mine hand upon thee and will uh, rule down uh, the rocks and will make thee a burnt mountain. So here is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, I am continually. I am forever. I am everlastingly against you. Now, if we take that, we can see that there is a, an inference there to the eternal punishment of the wicked. If God is constantly 
and eternally against you. Uh, that is something that we can see in this portion of Scripture. And, of course, we can see it in other portions of Scripture as well. Now, I'm preaching something tonight that, again, is not popular. There's one of the German commentators, and he wrote a book on sin. And he made the comment, and I quote, No one is surer of applause than the man who discovers some new method of evading justice under the pretext of humanity. And that's what many preachers are doing this evening. Under the pretext of humanity, under the pretext, uh, as Joel Osteen has said, he says, I don't want to, he told people, I don't want to tell people that they are sinners. He said that they have enough guilt in their lives. They already know that they're sinners. Well, men and women do not know that they're sinners. Men and women seek to put the wool over their heads and they don't want to admit that they're sinners. But there are many today under the pretext of humanity, under the pretext of speaking in the sense that they want to butter people up and want people to think well of them, are not going to preach this. But I want you to see that all through the word of God, there is this revelation of everlasting punishment. You think of the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, or 40, 25, verse 46. And he speaks of the ungodly and he says, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. Now what is the point of everlasting punishment if they go in there and they're annihilated? Why does the punishment, why does the punishment, how can the punishment go on everlastingly? if they are annihilated just when they are put into that place. And I want you to see that God here is bounden by duty to give the punishment that is meet for the crime. And the job of the preacher then is to warn people of everlasting punishment. We think of the eternity of hell. We think of it as a place where the worm dieth not and the Fire is not quenched. We think of it as a place of outer darkness. And my, we think of that place where there is justice that's going to be meted out at the end of the day. And the job of the preacher is to warn you. If I wasn't warning you, I wouldn't be doing my job tonight. But I want you to think about the prominence of the truth through the Bible. We think of, again, Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. Now, that word everlasting there is the same word that is used in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, where it speaks of the eternal spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is the eternal spirit. The eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, never comes to an end. Never, never throughout all eternity is there going to be a time when there is no Holy Spirit. Uh, there is a time when he will be withdrawn from the world, but that doesn't mean that he goes out of existence. We think of how, again, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 26, the same word is used to describe the everlasting God. So, this means eternal, everlasting. It means 
that it goes on and on and on, there is going to be no end. It says in 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 to 9, in the description of the second coming of Christ, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Everlasting destruction cannot mean anything other than it goes on everlastingly. If a person is put into destruction and they perish and that's it, it's not everlasting destruction. And we think of the awful warning that God gives in his word. But he does warn you. He does warn you. It's not as if you're going out into that place unwarned, unspoken uh, to. God brings the word of warning. But not only do I want you to see the prominence of this truth, but the practicality of it. Why does God reveal those awful things? He does it so that men and women would have the opportunity to flee. We think of the scriptures and the word that speaks of the wrath of God and that speaks of the everlasting punishment also speaks of the Savior who went to the cross and shed his blood, who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. God's chastisement, the wrath of God that was our due, was poured out upon him. It says in verse 10 of the same chapter, Isaiah 53, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, who shall make his soul an offering for sin. And you think of how our Savior bore our wrath, our punishment in his own body on the tree. And he only was the only one who could do that. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And dear friend, tonight, the message of the gospel is that you don't need to suffer the wrath of God. But one more thing I want you to notice, especially in the verse 13 there. And this is the prohibition of this God. We thought about the power of this God, and we have thought about the perpetuity of this God, that He is a God who is everlasting, and his punishment then is everlasting. But look at the prohibition of this God. Look at the end of the text there, verse 13. And he said, And I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. Now, you'll know that in chapter 1, verse 15, uh, last time we thought about the messengers. You notice what it says in verse 15 of chapter 1. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And here, Nahum is quoting from the text in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And it reads, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, 
that bringeth good tidings of good, that pub publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Now in Isaiah, we pointed out this the last day, in Isaiah, the reference is to the Messiah who will come, the one who will reign, the one who will come to bring good tidings. The word good tidings there is the gospel. It's the gospel is spoken of here. And then in Romans chapter 10, verse 15, the same text is quoted again by uh, Paul. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace that bring glad tidings of good things. So what they're preaching here is the gospel. Now, in the book of Nahum, as we said last time, the good tidings are the good tidings of the destruction of the wicked. In the New Testament, the good tidings are the good tidings of Christ and the gospel and the way of salvation and the way of mercy. But there are two sides of the one coin, really. God is going to save his people. He's going to destroy the lost. He's going to bring the uh, uh, saved to that place of everlasting life. He will bring the unsaved, those that rebel against God, into that place of everlasting death. So we see here, there is the contrast. But you'll see that really what we, if we summarize it all, the message that has been preached here that are coming with good tidings is the message of the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a savor of life unto life in the gospel, and there is a savor of death unto death. But what I want you to see now, we're trying to get round to this, is that in chapter 2, verse 13, he says that he's going to cut off the prey from the earth, and the voice of the messengers shall no more be heard. So we read about the messengers in chapter 1, verse 15, and the other places, and we summarized it by saying, this is the preaching of the gospel. But God says to the people of Nineveh, you're going to hear the gospel no more. That's really what he's saying. I'm going to cut off these messengers that come with the message of glad tidings, that come with the message of salvation. You're not going to hear that anymore. You're not going to hear it anymore. Every opportunity that you had, you wasted. And now there is no more opportunity. If you turn to the end of chapter 3, he says, There is no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous. All that hear the bruit of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. So not only is the gospel message come to an end, but their opportunity has come to an end. Now in chapter 1 and verse 3, we read about the Lord is slow to anger. And he is slow to anger. And he gives many people many opportunities and many uh, times when they can get right with God and call upon the Lord for salvation. But the Bible also says that God has said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. There is a time when opportunities come to an end. There's a time when the offer of mercy is brought to a close. There's a time when the message, the good tidings of peace that are brought from heaven itself, those messages are going to be heard no more. Whether you perish, maybe suddenly, 
whether it is that you uh, get to the point where you're not interested in the things of God or the message of God or the revelation that God has given in his word, whether you turn your back upon that and you hear it no more or that God just stops speaking. God, you can presume on the message of God. You don't know what circumstances may take place and God may just say, no more. No more voice of the messengers. No more preachers on the streets. No more preachers in the pulpits. No more preachers to tell you of the way of salvation. And yes, to tell you about God's wrath and curse that you might flee from wrath to come. No more preachers. Dear friend, as you sit under the sound of the word of God, as you're tuning in tonight, under the sound of the preaching of the word of God, heed the message. Don't despise it. Don't reject it. Don't sneer at it. But listen to what God has said in his word. He comes with mercy to you tonight. And he wants you to repent. But there comes the time when the voice of the messengers will no more be heard in the land. There are many of these lands. Well, we're going to say where the voice of the messenger isn't heard. But there are many of those lands where there is a turning to God, thankfully, where the message hasn't been heard for centuries, many uh, years. But God in his mercy has stepped in. And God is sovereign over all of these things. But dear friend, don't presume that God's going to keep on speaking to you. You need to get right with him now. If he's speaking to your heart, and maybe I'm speaking to you tonight, and you know that God is speaking to you. Don't turn your back upon God, but cry unto God, lest God is against you. Make sure that you can say, the Lord is with me every step that I take. May God write his word upon our hearts. Let's just bow in a word of prayer, please. Our loving God and our gracious Father in heaven, we think of the solemnity of the word that we've been looking at tonight where God is against these people. And our Father, we pray that thou wouldst draw. We thank that God can take those that are against him and turn them into his uh, family and turn them into his sons and daughters and bring them from nature's darkness and death into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we pray that thou wouldst have mercy tonight and draw sinners to thyself. For it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. The hymn 325 is our closing hymn tonight. The hymn 325, I was a sinner but now I'm free. His wondrous grace has rescued me. Once I was blind, but now I see a brand from the burning. He rescued me. And that's what can happen to you. You can be a brand plucked from the burning tonight. Three, two, five, and we'll stand as we sing.
gracious Father in heaven, rescue brands from the burning to nine, draw sinners to thyself. Part us in thy fear and with thy blessing. Be with us as we go our separate ways. We pray that the God of grace might be our portion, that thy blessing would be upon us as we go. We thank thee, we can say that the Lord is with us, and we pray that thou wouldst be with us throughout the incoming days, no matter what those days bring. We pray that we might be conscious that the Lord is with us every step of the way. Bless us now, part us in thy fear and with thy blessing, for it's in Jesus' precious name I would ask these things. Amen.